Is the Antichrist just a mythical figure, or is he someone we can identify through Bible prophecy? We'll explore that question and more today in episode 30 of Adventology entitled, The Rise of Antichrist. Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you find answers to the big questions of life so that you can live a life of influence that ultimately impacts the world for eternity. Each week, we will explore a different chapter in the story of humanity that centers around Jesus Christ and culminates at His second coming. Whether you know Jesus already or are simply curious about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, this podcast has something for you. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. If you've been listening to this podcast over the past several months, you have probably noticed that we have danced around the topic of Antichrist on several different episodes now. And some of you have probably been wondering if we were ever going to address it directly. If that is the case, this is the episode you've been waiting for. And if this is your first time listening, I definitely encourage you to go back, particularly to episodes 17, 22, 25, and 27 before listening. So for this episode, I decided to try an experiment. What would happen if we started our discussion on the Antichrist simply by Googling it and seeing what we could discover on the first page of hits? I mean, who doesn't go to Google when searching for information? I know I do almost every day. So are you curious what I discovered? Well, not surprisingly, the number one ranking website that pops up is Wikipedia. And so this is what Wikipedia had to say. In summary, in Christian eschatology, the Antichrist is someone recognized as fulfilling the biblical prophecies about one who will oppose Christ and substitute himself in Christ's place before the second coming. This was by far the most balanced definition I found on the first page. The second hit on Google was for a 2009 movie entitled Antichrist that upon further inspection appears to be a graphic horror movie with Gnostic influences that have little or nothing to do with biblical prophetic themes. Enough said about that. The number three ranking hit was from Britannica.com. And here is the summary that they had on their website about Antichrist. Antichrist is the polar opposite and ultimate enemy of Christ. According to Christian tradition, he will reign terribly in the period prior to the Last Judgment. The Antichrist first appeared in the epistles of John, and the fully developed story of Antichrist's life and reign is found in medieval texts. So the emphasis here was clearly more on extra-biblical source material. Now, hits four through six surprisingly were pretty bland. However, number seven on the list hit the current events jackpot. Here we find a 2017 article from theoutline.com entitled Apocalyptic Thinking in the Age of Trump. In this article, the author boldly states, America is ready for the end times and keenly points back to the bizarre forces at work during the 2016 U.S. presidential election that inspired both sides of the aisle to point to the other's candidate as Antichrist. And here is the key takeaway quote from that article. 
lacking textual anchors, those troubled by the coming end times have been free to succumb to their imaginations. Makes sense, right? Left to our imaginations, anyone we fear who has power automatically becomes a candidate for Antichrist. So what do we make of all this? Is the answer to Antichrist's identity found in today's politics, as many assert, or is it found in the annals of medieval Christianity, as others would say? Is there really a lack of textual anchors in the Bible that could help us identify who or what the Antichrist really is? Or are we left to wonder into the future without a clue until just one day he mysteriously decides to show up? Thankfully, upon close inspection, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark on this topic. In previous episodes, we have already seen how Revelation 13 identifies the Antichrist as a beast rising up out of the sea. And this beast is part of a counterfeit trinity that also includes the dragon and the false prophet. So let's remind ourselves what Revelation has to say about him by going back to Revelation 13 beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, since the language used in apocalyptic literature is almost always symbolic, we are going to have to put on our detective hat and glasses to decipher what God is trying to show us here. Since we don't want to bring our own ideas to the passage, it's important to allow the Bible to interpret the clues for us. And so what are those clues? Notice the beast is made in the likeness of the dragon, who also has seven heads and ten horns according to Revelation 12, verse 3. Which makes sense because the dragon and the beast are counterfeit God the Father and God the Son. Thus, just as Jesus was the express image of the Father in heaven and received his authority from him, so the beast is the express image of the dragon, from whom he receives his power, throne, and great authority. If you remember from episode 27, the dragon is the fallen angel Lucifer himself, who still can make himself appear as an angel of light. Thus, the beast, made in his image, has the power to do the same. So beyond the inherited qualities the beast received from the dragon, we can also see that Revelation describes him as a conglomeration of a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And so the next logical question is, where else in apocalyptic scripture do we find these three beasts? It doesn't take long to realize that the clues point us back to Daniel chapter 7. Now we will see why our study in Daniel 2 was so important on episode 22. So let's go back to Daniel 7 and start reading in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, King of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while in bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. 
The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Wow, there can be no shadow of a doubt that we are on the right path to discover the identity of the Antichrist now. Just as the beast in Revelation comes up out of the sea, so these four great beasts who preceded it do the same. But what does this mean? Well, if you remember from Daniel 2, there were three successive kingdoms that were shown to King Nebuchadnezzar that would rise and fall after Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And instead of a fifth ruling empire, the fourth kingdom, Rome, would be divided and would remain as such until the judgment and the second coming of Jesus. Now here in Daniel 7, we see the same progression. And instead of metals, we have beasts. But how do we know these beasts represent kingdoms as well? Well, later in Daniel 7, the vision is explained to Daniel by the angel And he told him directly, those great beasts which are four are four kings or kingdoms which rise up out of the earth. Daniel 7 verse 17. Not surprisingly then, each of the four beasts themselves contains qualities of the kingdoms they represent. The lion with eagle's wings was actually the symbol Babylon used to represent herself during her reign. And... The king of the jungle is a fitting symbol for the most glorious kingdom of all antiquity. But as we know, Babylon was replaced on the world stage by Medo-Persia, who, like a bear, rose up and devoured three kingdoms symbolized by the three ribs. Those three kingdoms were Lydia, Egypt, and, of course, Babylon. And, of course, Persia was eventually conquered by Greece, who, like the four-headed leopard, rose up to power quickly and was subsequently divided into four parts after Alexander the Great's untimely death. Finally, Rome, the nondescript, dreadful, terrible beast with iron teeth and ten horns, rises up to defeat the Greek Empire, which connects logically with the iron legs of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. However, instead of ten toes, we now have ten horns. As you can see, at this point, not only do we have historical context for the lion, bear, and leopard conglomerate in the Antichrist beast of Revelation 13, but we also have a context for the ten horns. Could the dragon of Revelation 12, the symbolic representation of Satan, also represent Rome, the fourth beast of Daniel 7? Both have ten horns and share many other common characteristics. We'll have to come back to that later. For now, though, this is where things start to get very interesting in Daniel 7. For if the ten horns correspond to the ten toes of Daniel 2, then we know already that they represent the ten divisions of Rome. So, we are talking history. 
This is all unfolding in a historical context that not only moves well beyond Daniel's time as he is writing, but even beyond John the Revelator, who was writing during the reign of the Roman Empire nearly 400 years before her fall in 476. Thus, the ten divisions of Rome make up what today we would refer to as Europe, originally a group of ten tribes known as the Anglo-Saxons, the Alemanni, the Heruli, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Suevi, the Lombards, the Burgundians, and the Franks. Thus, on a historical timeline, we have moved over a thousand years from Daniel's time of 538 B.C. to the fall of Rome in 476 A.D. So the question now is, what did Daniel see next? Let's go back to Daniel 7 and pick it up in verse 8. Notice what he was shown. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Daniel 7, 8 through 12. Here we are introduced to a new character, new detail that we didn't receive in Daniel 2, but that historically may help us identify the Antichrist. Notice the little horn rises up to power among the other ten. And then just as in the vision of Daniel chapter 2, stays on the world stage until the judgment of the last days. In Daniel 2, all we see is a large rock cut out without hands that strikes the nation symbolized by the image and grounds them into powder. Here, though, we're given more detail. A formal judgment in heaven is taking place, and the result of that judgment is destruction for all the beasts or kingdoms of the earth. So it is clear that this vision is historical in nature and takes us from the past to the present and all the way to the future when Jesus shall come again. In fact, we don't have to guess because the chapter goes on to say in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Of course, the Son of Man is the title for the Messiah, the title Jesus loved to use most in reference to himself, 79 times, in fact, as recorded in the Gospels. 
And every time he says it, he's pointing us back to this prophecy. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. For now, we have this gap to fill in historically between 476 AD and the judgment in the second coming of Jesus. To identify the little horn historically, we now will have to look at the clues provided in the chapter, which are derived exclusively from Scripture itself, not speculation. So verse 8 gives us the first set of clues. We already read it in context with the other verses, but let's read it again to remind ourselves what it said. It says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So let's lay out the clues. Geographically, it rises in Europe after 476 AD among the other ten horns. Also, it exercises the political power of a nation and is responsible for the destruction of three of the ten horns or original nations that formed out of the Roman Empire. Also, we see that this little horn has eyes of a man, which indicate a religious aspect to this power as well. Eyes of a man stand in contrast to a seer of God, as the true prophets of the Old Testament were often referred to as. Thus, the little horn takes on the qualities of a false prophet. Not surprising, then, pompous words follow, which is another way of saying blasphemy, which simply mean assuming for itself prerogatives that only belong to God. As a reference, Jesus was accused of blasphemy in the New Testament for claiming he could forgive sins and that he was one with the Father. Okay. So at this point, there is no doubt that this power is a historical force to be reckoned with. But thankfully, there are more clues to the little horn's identity in verse 25. Notice what it says. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. So, adding to the list, we see that the little horn shall be a persecuting power of God's people. And the little horn shall boast of its ability to change or alter God's times and law, a clear reference to the Ten Commandments. And that the time of its rule shall be three and a half years. Given the historical context of the vision, the three and a half years most certainly refer to three and a half prophetic years, 360 days in a year times three and a half equals 1260 literal years. Now the question is how many of these clues correspond with the clues provided us in reference to the beast in Revelation 13? Well, let's go back to Revelation 13 and pick it up in verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, And he was given authority to continue 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life, the lamb slain from the foundation 
of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I think you can see both Daniel and John are describing the same entity. The little horn in Daniel and the first beast of Revelation 13 are one. They both represent Antichrist. Thus, there's no need to speculate or wonder about the future manifestation of an unknown power. This power is an ancient one. This religious power has its roots in Rome, the dragon, and received all its power and authority directly from her. And even as the dragon fell off the main stage, his express image remained a conglomerate of paganism wrapped in the religious garbs of Christianity. An antichrist that not only stands against Christ, but more subtly tries to take his place. So you be the judge. Just who or what historical, religio-political power is Bible prophecy pointing to that has its roots in Rome, dominated Europe during the 1260 years after the fall of Rome in 476, claimed for herself prerogatives that belong to God alone, such as forgiveness of sin, attempted to change God's Ten Commandment law and the time associated with it, and viciously persecuted all of God's people who stood against her. A church, you say? And you would be right in saying it. But is it God's church? Is it really that surprising that a church could be the seat of the throne of Antichrist in the last days? Paul said it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Let's not fall into the trap of speculation when it comes to this topic. Antichrist is not coming. Antichrist is already here and has been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. When we set aside God's commandments and replace it with our own opinions and traditions while still claiming to represent God on earth, we become that which we fear the most. There is nothing we should fear more than the unrestrained power of a man who has put himself in the place of God. Antichrist is the spirit of this world, and one day the world will once again turn to a religious entity that embodies his spirit to rule with authority. All the world will worship and follow the beast, all that is except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will be able to resist the power that is soon to sweep over the entire world as it once did over the entire continent of Europe. The dark ages are called dark for a reason, and darkness is coming again. That is why we must walk today while we still have the light. Walk in the light of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. If you commit to doing that, you have nothing to fear. 
Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you may be compelled by the king of Babylon himself to bow down and worship the image, but he will not be able to hurt you. Even if you are thrown into the fire, Jesus, the Son of God himself, will go into the fire with you to keep you safe. Don't buy into the hype of everything you read about the Antichrist, but don't neglect this time as an opportunity to study for yourself. History will repeat itself again. History is repeating itself again. The cry of the world for a strong man to fix its problems is the cry for the Antichrist to retake his power over the earth once again. Don't give up. Don't give in. Be ready for Jesus. Jesus is coming soon. And in the meantime, he says to you, Now when these things begin to happen, Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. That is why we spent the time today studying the rise of the Antichrist. But don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, where you can get a transcript of today's episode along with any of the previous episodes we have already published. Also, if you've been blessed by this podcast, share it with a friend. Better yet, leave a rating and review from wherever you downloaded this podcast from. It really makes a difference. You can also let me know personally how you have enjoyed the episode by contacting me on Facebook or Twitter. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together again today, and I look forward to seeing you back here on our next episode of Adventology. In the meantime, Maranatha. Maranatha.